Would you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3? 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, we're going to look towards the end of the chapter in verse 14, and we're going to cross over into verse uh, into chapter 4 as we read through verse 13. Uh, I'm sorry, as we read through the end of 3, we're going to start into the beginning of 4. Now, if you can remember, when the Bible was first written, there were no such things as chapters and verses. So when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he just wrote a heck of a long letter. And, and later on, people were like, come on, Paul, let's put some headings and numbers in there so we can organize this. So they did the best they could. But just because we're reading from two chapters doesn't mean we're reading from two different subjects. And, and what's happening in, at the end of three crosses over into the beginning of four. So I'm going to read across that. And I'm actually, to complicate things even more for you, I'm going to skip a couple of verses. Okay, the whole thing's going to be up here as I read. And I think hopefully as we go through the message this morning, you'll see how it all fits together. Okay, so we're going to jump right in the middle of an argument Paul is making uh, across chapters. We're going to skip a couple of verses at the beginning of four. um, And then we're going to talk a little bit about what it means. Everybody ready? Fasten your seatbelts. Starting in verse three, we're going to read from uh, 314. Jumping over some stuff to the end of 4-6. And it, like I said, it will be here before you. These are the very words of the Lord. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read... A veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And jumping a few verses. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory. Of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, everything in this passage tells us, as we'll see, we need you to say again this morning, let there be light. We need you to proclaim light into our hearts, to command through your word that your word would be seeable by us and that we would be transformed by the word that has become seeable to us. Without that, Lord, we are helpless before you. But we have boldness this morning 
Because Jesus Christ is worthy of our boldness. His blood is sufficient for everything that would keep you from hearing our prayer this morning and helping us to see you and to be changed by you. And so in the almighty name of your almighty son who has poured out his almighty sacrifice, we pray, God, open our eyes to see you and transform us through seeing you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. If you recall the last couple of messages, we've considered this question of the greater works that Jesus said his followers would do in his name, and namely the conversion of souls. And we've been considering our role and the Holy Spirit's role in the work of the conversion of souls in the last two messages. Well, today we're going to double down exclusively on the spiritual warfare behind the scenes that's going on in the dynamics of the conversion of a soul from death to life. To put it another way, in terms of this passage, we're going to consider the issue of spiritual blindness caused by Satan in the souls of the lost and the cure of spiritual blindness that God affects in their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. The theme this morning is spiritual blindness and its cure. And my hope is that by considering deeply the realities of this spiritual blindness, that, that, that that's what's really going on in here, we're going to come away with, with two things. I hope that we'll come away more attuned to our own powerlessness to bring spiritual sight to anyone in ourselves apart from the Holy Spirit. I'm hoping that we'll come away with, with, with a defeated self-sufficiency and a sense that we are powerless to bring sight to anyone Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And two, ironically maybe in, in view of point one, I'm hoping we'll be more ambitious and confident to share the gospel. Because of the fact that we're exclusively dependent on someone else, namely the Holy Spirit, to do the hard, heavy lifting. I'm hoping that we'll be more confident to share so the gospel might bring through the Holy Spirit's work through us sight to the blind. So, spiritual blindness and its cure, that's our theme today. And I want to talk about spiritual blindness first and then we'll talk about its cure so what is it and what are its causes and to get there i'm going to take you guys in a little story on a little story decades ago i had been reading the bible and i had been provoked i I actually i can't remember whether i was a believer on the precipice or a new believer but i had been provoked by the accuracy i was reading concerning messianic prophecy That is, those passages in the Old Testament, written centuries before Jesus ever stepped a foot on the earth, which seemed to predict his life so perfectly. And I thought to myself, why do Jewish people not think about this? Is there something different in their Old Testament? I mean, this is Jesus I'm reading in their own Bible. So I was in a bookstore. It was actually Crown Books. This is for free. Do you guys, anybody remember Crown Books? Oh man, we're all, we all need to go to Denny's and get the senior citizen. I'm just, that's terrible. Was that bad? Please forgive me. I mean, I'm, I'm just getting up there. I just am. So crown books, cause it's, it, they closed it in like the 1800s. That was about me. That was about me. Just me. Can we, can we put this back on the tracks? Okay. I'm so sorry. So I was in crown books and I found the Tanakh. The Tanakh is the Jewish-only Bible. It's basically our Old Testament for Jewish folks. And, and I looked up Isaiah 53. 
written 700 years before Christ. And the, the important thing to remember is that this was going to be a scripture translated for Jewish people, presumably by Jewish scholars, not for Christians. And as I got ready to read, I was almost rhetorically betting, there's no way that the Jewish version of Isaiah 53 is going to say what my Christian version of Isaiah 53 says. And as I read the English translation of the Hebrews, that would have looked close to this, the Hebrew. Just I'm just putting it up there. This is Isaiah 53 in Hebrew. Just to give you the sense that this is 2,700 years old. I, I read these words in English. Verse 1. Who would have believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of Yashem been revealed? Verse 2, for he shot up right forth as a sapling and as a root out of dry ground. He had no form of, or no, nor comeliness that we should look upon him, nor beauty that we should delight in him. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of pains and acquainted with disease, and as one from whom head, men hide their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely our diseases he did bear and our pains he carried, whereas we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was wounded because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The chastisement of our welfare was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep did go astray. We turned everyone to his own way. And Yashem hath made to light on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed, though he humbled himself and opened not his mouth as a lamb that is led to the slaughter and as sheep that before her shears is dumb. Yea, he opened not his mouth. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And with his generation, who did reason? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his tomb. Although he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10. Yet it pleased Yachem to crush him by disease to see if his soul would offer itself in restitution. That he might see his seed, prolong his days, and that the purpose of Yashem might prosper by his hand. Verse 11, of the travail of his soul, he shall see to the full, even my servant, who by his knowledge did justify the righteous one to the many, and their iniquities he did bear. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion among the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the mighty, because... He bared his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 
Folks, that's the Jewish Bible. That's not the Christian New Testament. 700 years before Jesus cried as a baby, this was written by the prophet Isaiah for the Jewish people by a Jewish prophet. I was kind of blown away. It was just what my version of Isaiah said. And I thought to myself, how could any intellectually honest and fully committed Jewish person read this and not be deeply troubled? If they knew even the basics of the Christian idea of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice for sins, how could they not look at this prophecy and say, uh, mom, dad, ancestors, synagogue leaders, hello, this, this looks like that Jesus guy. And you know what? By God's grace, that happens sometimes and the miracle of conversion may be on its way. But the sad truth is that In the synagogue calendar, which includes weekly readings of Isaiah at times, this chapter, chapter 53, the most powerful picture of the crucifixion of Jesus and its meaning in one place, in the whole Bible, I believe, for for my money, in one place, it's never, ever, ever read. For instance, it's just not part of the liturgical calendar. For instance, for the readings, you can look this up, you know, and, and I, this is on the interweb, so take it with a grain of salt. But I've, I've read this in several places. For the readings of August 2017, in a few months, in the synagogue, liturgies will see this pattern through Isaiah. Isaiah 49, 50, 51, 52, 54, 55. But they will not read 53. How did this happen? How is it that when Isaiah 53 is read by a devout and knowledgeable Jewish person, they don't say it's Jesus? And and what is possibly behind the fact that Isaiah 53 never even gets read in synagogue? Politics, jealousies, sin. Yes, those are all in there. The way the church has mistreated Jewish people at times in history, probably all in there. But behind all of that, the Apostle Paul has a very much more deeply sobering answer. And it's in what we just read this morning. Verse 14. Their minds were hardened for this day. When they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is talking about spiritual sight, not human decision, spiritual sight concerning the message of the gospel of Christ He's using the image of a literal cloth veil that covers little eyes to speak metaphorically of a real spiritual veil keeping people from seeing the truth of Jesus with spiritual sight. And Paul says there is something much more sinister even behind that veil than you or I might contemplate going on in the hearts of those who refuse Christ. He says the God of this world has blinded them. This is Satan. John 12, 31, Jesus calls Satan the prince 
of this world. And in 1 John 5, 19, John writes, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Here is the sobering news Paul has for us this morning. Behind every person, Jew or Gentile, who reads about Jesus and thinks one of these things. He reads about Jesus and he thinks he was a good man. Period. Or, that's fine for him. Boy, Jesus is a great way to God. And we have this way. Or, ah, not this Jesus stuff. Or, that is not the true Messiah. Or, what a bunch of mythical fantasy poison. Or perhaps most frightening and tragic. Ah, yes, Jesus. I can have him. And I can have my sin as well. Behind all of those responses is Satan. Blinding people from seeing the truth about the glory of Jesus. His true beauty. His true worth. His true love. His true sacrifice. His true value. And, and for you and I still, behind every moment, our eyes get number and number and, and less and less tasteful. He's working through our flesh. For all of us, before the day, the moment, some of us remember it, some of us don't, when we finally said, oh Lord, I see you. I want you. Oh, you are glorious. I need you. I trust you. Please help me give my life to you. Before that day, we were all blinded by the God of this world. And we can think of Satan as this evil being that causes things we might see in scary movies that we read about in the Bible that are real, like foamed mouth, demon-possessed people throwing chairs and wrestling seven guys to the ground. That's horrifying. But Satan's great work, his main work, his most important work is much more subtle and awful. It's blinding our minds so that we can't see Jesus or so that we see him as nice or irrelevant, or foolish, or offensive, or a great prophet, or a good man, or an exploitable God to underwrite our sin and our pleasures. Paul says that Satan keeps us from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Jesus. We don't see him when we're under Satan's influence, persuasion, and domination. We don't see him as the sin-bearing son of God who loves us who calls us to live our life for him because he alone is worthy, because he's paid for all our sins, because he will give us all we need to give ourselves to him. The human family, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, does not see this. So Satan's not as most terrifying when he possesses someone, though that is terrifying. It's this quieter, spiritually blinding dominion he has over the lost to continually kill them with lies just as he did to our first mother and our first father in the garden. Now, mankind's not an innocent victim of this captivity to blindness. We are not innocent victims. We are willing victims, the Bible says. In Romans 1, we've talked about this before, we see this picture of the human family choosing to exchange this glory of who God really is, resulting in lives that we're supposed to bring out love and reverence and enjoyment and devotion to our majestic creator. We, we chose as a human family to trade that in for lesser gods of our own wills and our own idolatries. 
But it gets worse, as we talked about before, because in God's justice, our hearts that willfully harden themselves against his glory and say, we don't want your glory. We don't want to live for you. They become hearts that are handed over to a blindness that we can never get ourselves out of. So we can't even see Jesus and escape if we wanted to. We're helpless. Now, Satan has many ways, means that he uses to keep people blind. He can use atheism, right? And obviously, he can use false religion. Listen, he can use false religion truly embraced, or he can use true religion falsely embraced. He can use Christless do-gooderism, social justice without Jesus. Anything, just as long as Jesus is not seen for who he truly is. God's always the most important person in the room. He's always the one to whom the honor and the glory, the thanks and the devotion is due above everything else. But And I think today, uniquely, perhaps in our age, in our culture, in the West, more and more, one of the greatest tools that Satan used to keep people blind is keeping us just amused. Just keeping us distracted. I mean, we, 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 and sometimes we get, we get hideous peaks into the real depth of the depravity of this. And, and we can see ourselves even susceptible to this effects. Some of you might recall, here's an example that just really stirred me. Some of you recall, because I feel culpable in it, that, that in December, Carrie Fisher died. Carrie Fisher brilliantly played Princess Leia in the Star Wars movies. Passionate spirit, brilliant intellect, wild sense of humor. Won lifelong fame as the, the daughter of Darth Vader and the sister of Luke Skywalker. And she died in December of a heart attack. And when she died, first there was this outpouring of, of sorrow, sadness, gratefulness for the entertainment she brought to so many through Star Wars movies. And being a Star Wars fan, I watched and read and, and saw that all sort of die down. But this big question grew up in its place. This really important question began to sprout up as people moved on from the fact that she died. And the question is, what will happen to Princess Leia? I mean, what will happen to Leia? Will she be in episode nine? Will they do a CGI Leia? What's going to happen to the story? I mean, episode nine was already like thought about, right? They're going to have to change the whole thing. Will Luke ever get to see his sister? I found myself asking all those questions. (laughs) What's going to happen to Princess Leia? And to many people writing and blogging and commenting, that became the big question. Carrie Fisher is not asking that question today. The big question is not what's going to happen to Princess Leia. The big question is what has happened to Carrie Fisher? Where is she right now? What happened to her spirit? I just thought that was such an acute example of, of our blindness of, and, and, and the blindness that lives in me too. We are amusing ourselves to death, as a book in the 80s put it. We're losing this last vestiges to, to this common sense of concern for the human soul in our culture, I feel like. To put it another way, we're blind. We're willfully blind to the transparent fact that everyone knows this life ends 
And that even apart from the question of Christianity being true or not, all people should obviously care deeply about the question of what happens after this life. I mean, even if it was a bunch of agnostics and is Muslims and, you know, everybody should just wonder. Everybody should be really troubled and bothered by the fact that death is a really long time and we're all going there. And no one has any idea of what's going to happen. We should just walk around as a, as a global family, just com- compelled to try to figure that question out. Why am I so tempted to care more about what happens to Princess Leia than to the eternal soul of Carrie Fisher? That is a real sickness at war in me. And it's a real blindness that Satan's trying to grab back my heart. But he won't win because by God's grace, I belong to God's son now. But men and women, I'm just using that to make the point. We are just powerless to this obvious blindness. We're no match for him, this enemy of our souls. Our sinful hearts are no match for Satan. They were no match for him in Eden, and they're no match for him today. He is a being of comparatively enormous power, and we cannot save ourselves from the disease of blindness that he crushes the human family from. But he is no match for God. He's no match for our Savior. It's no contest. And so let's move on to the cure for spiritual blindness and move into some better news. The cure for spiritual blindness. I want to talk about the Spirit's work in enlightening spiritual eyes so that people can see. What does the Spirit do? Let's come back to our text. And we'll break it up a little bit to look at a couple of different pieces here. First, when Paul talks about the Spirit, he's coming back to this issue of this veil. This fact that people are blind. So in verse, in chapter, um, coming back to chapter 3 and 16, here's what he says about that veil. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So notice here that Paul is saying that the agent of freedom from blindness is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in such a way internally upon the soul of a person that he allows formerly blind people to somehow... By his work, by his agency, he allows them to see the glory of Jesus that they could never see before. And suddenly they begin to get transformed by it. They are able to see Jesus with spiritual eyes. And that seeing Jesus with spiritual eyes through the power of the Holy Spirit, that actually becomes the catalyst as they see him again and again, more and more, for their own transformation into becoming more and more like Jesus. Which is the whole goal of our redemption. And Paul says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And in verse 5 and 6 of the next chapter, Paul talks about how the Spirit does this. How the Spirit cures this blindness. Look at verse 5. Just follows this beautiful. It's so simple, but it's so beautiful. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves, as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Look closely at verse 5. What is happening that brings spiritual sight to blind people? We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We're your servants for his sake. He called us to this. And then look at what happens in verse 6. Through this proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord, God, in verse 6, does the ultimate creative act. God does the heavy lifting. He gives spiritual sight to spiritually blind people. He shines truth into hearts that have no truth. He shines light into hearts that have nothing formerly but darkness. This is spiritual light. It is truth becoming visible, attractive, beautiful, glorious, irresistible. Irresistible. Paul likens this to the creation of the universe. When God spoke to the chaos and disorder and emptiness and darkness, he said to all of that junk, let there be light. And there was nothing that darkness could do about it when he said it. And so, just as he creates light out of darkness in the physical world, and nothing can stop him, he does the same with human hearts that are dark and blind to the light of the gospel. I recall how often I heard about Jesus and his love growing up. And it just, it all, at times it just seemed attractive to me. At times it just seemed like for nerds. It just seemed, but overall it just seemed impossible. It just seemed like I just, I couldn't see it. At times I felt like I kind of wanted to see it. Other times I just felt like I didn't. But overall, none of that mattered. It was just, the word I can only think of use, it's just impossible. The gospel just seemed impossible for me to, to really grasp to really embrace. Years went by, even towards the end of my uh, blindness, as my friend began sharing the gospel's grace to me. I just I had this growing, oh, I want to, I want to, but I just couldn't. And then one day, my dad said some stuff in the car. You know, I've talked about this before, many of you. He said, salvation's a gift. I probably heard that a lot. And uh, suddenly it was just, Oh my gosh. Boom. Boom. I, I, I've, I've probably said this before. I could literally see almost. I could almost literally see the cross with Jesus on it. Bearing all of my sins. The best way I had to describe it is. I could not believe what I believed. I couldn't believe it. I got it. I got it. Oh my gosh. It's real. It, it's for me. It's everything I've ever wanted. Oh, what happened? God just said, let there be light. And there was light. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing greater at stake in this universe than the fate of human souls we interact with every day. God's glory is solved god's god's going to protect preserve and exalt his glory the question is who will see god's glory in the face of jesus christ and who will not princess leia doesn't matter carrie fisher's eternal soul matters c.s lewis put it this way it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses 
to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming, and it is overwhelming, possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. Our charity must be real and costly love. With deep feelings for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence. For each of us, this next life is one of either eternal death without end. And I I don't understand the Bible apart from seeing it as eternal torment. Eternal paying the debt owed to God without end, which is suffering. It is just, I don't understand the mystery of it, but Jesus calls it weeping. He calls it gnashing of teeth. He calls it outer darkness. He calls it sorrow. He calls it fire and suffering. As what we deserve. But we know the way out. We, we know the way to salvation. And the Spirit, He longs for us to speak those words that He might empower sight. Just a few takeaways. Move into some application here. Remember how you were cured of your blindness. If you can. Many of us can't. Some of us can. But if you can, remember. You moved from a place of refusal, rejection, and utter inability to embrace Jesus to a place of seeing him as beautiful and worthy and good and attractive and someone you wanted to give yourself to and depend on. God still does that. He can do that with the friends and neighbors and coworkers and family members you think are just never going to respond. He wants to do that. It is the mystery of his providence to decide when he does. But that's what he longs to do. That's what Jesus came to do. And you are an example of him being able to do that. He wooed you. He, he courted you. And one day he married you. He does that. So believe that God can do that to those people that you think are lost causes. Those people that are just so hard. Plead with God. God, say to Chris, let there be light. Number two, 
keep the weight of responsibilities in the right place. In evangelism, and you're thinking about the loss, keep the weight of responsibilities in the right place. You share. You do it imperfectly. God changes. He does it perfectly. You do a little planting. You do a little sowing. You do a little watering. Only he brings the growth. He does call you to be ready. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. He wants you to to get the two ways to live tracked or whatever you need to equip you to understand how to share gently and respectfully the truth of his gospel. It's not as, you know, we do have stuff to do. He, He wants us to pray for these people. But the hope has to be on his back. It has to be on his shoulders, right? So think about ways you can sow and you can plant. Think about like Facebook or Twitter. You know, there's all kinds of things to talk about. My goodness, we have eternal stakes, don't we? All these friends we have. Do we have a thousand friends to, to talk about how terrible Trump is or how great Trump is? I mean, is that why we have a thousand friends? I think we have a thousand friends so that we can talk about Jesus. I mean, I don't know what else to... I'm not saying that's a rule that you guys have to follow and everybody go home and start posting about Jesus today. I'm just saying just... Let's just do the, the, apart from obligation, just do the math. People are going to heaven or hell. They need to hear the gospel. Suddenly you have this mechanism by which you can just put Bible verses on Facebook, put truth and quotes about God on Facebook. And a lot of people who don't want to look at that are going to end up looking at that. Make the most of every opportunity, Ephesians says, for the days are evil. Think about your kids. When you keep the responsibility in the right place, there's hope for your kids. And there's maybe less manipulation. Maybe there's less heat. Maybe there's less despair. Maybe there's less pride and the anxiety that says, I can do this. I got to do this. Why aren't I doing this? Maybe there's more prayer for them and less disappointment in them. When we keep the responsibility in the right place and realize these kids are blind by Satan. Until God opens their eyes, they can't see. God, give them light. I'm preaching to the, well, no, I'm the cat calling the kettle black. (laughs) It's the right analogy. I need to hear these things. Number three, keep eternal realities before you. In a message a few weeks ago, I quoted a longer quote from Charles Spurgeon, but the, the bottom line sentence of the quote, if you remember, he said, There will be no fear of your being lethargic if you are continually familiar with eternal realities. He was talking about evangelism. He was talking about prayer and concern and being, being spiritually, in a godly way, anxious for the fate of the lost around you. He says, there will be no fear of your being lethargic or lazy if you are continually familiar with eternal realities. There's one, one of the most palpable things I remember about my first conversion days was how aware I was suddenly of eternal realities. Everybody in my life was binary. Everybody was suddenly a one or a zero. Everybody was suddenly going to heaven or hell. And it, it sobered me. It just, it just was with me all the time. And over time, I've just gotten used to whatever. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I think spiritual warfare takes place, and I get number to that. I get blinder to that. And so since that verse, I've, since that message, maybe sometime before, but I, I've just been trying to 
and, and partly it's a function of having to preach. I've been trying to embed myself in these spiritual realities. And I bought a book by Francis Chan called Erasing Hell. What God said about eternity and the things we've made up. It's a really good book. It's super, super accessible. It's very simple. Um, but it's been so provoking. You know, there have been a few times when I, I literally have, have not been able to, to go to sleep. Because I've just been shaken and woken up. God just allowed the thought of, of eternal suffering for, for people to just hit me. And it just woke me up. And I don't want to live that way every moment. I, I wouldn't be able to survive. But, but I, want to, I want to have enough of that nearby to, to keep me caring. And, and so, you know, ironically, a book about hell has been, not only has it kind of put present troubles in better perspective, when I realize what I really deserve and where I really could be headed compared to the trials of this life, but it's made me more anxious to want to give the two ways to live track to somebody, to want to pray. Just, Lord, today give me someone to talk to. Give me one person to talk to. I prayed that uh, about eight days ago, nine days ago, and God answered the prayer. I haven't prayed it since. I should be praying it since. But it was just a great thing to just say, God, today, please put somebody in my life I can talk to you about. And by that evening, I was, at, um, I was with Mark and Jacob Hall. We were at uh, TGI Fridays, and the waitress came over, and suddenly we're talking to her about her woes and her just terrible circumstances with her ex-husband-to-be and a little two-year-old, and, and suddenly she's sitting down next to us, and she's taking breaks, coming back to our table to tell us about her life, and we suddenly were praying for her, and then suddenly, like, I'm paying her and putting two ways to live tracked in her and writing a little note in the—, in the I just—it was just beautiful. It was just awesome. And, you know, I, I was scared to death for some of that time. I just kept praying. Oh, God, please help me. Please help me. Please help me. I don't know what to say. Should I say this? Is this going to be too much? Is it going to be too hard to say about Jesus and hell? Should I just keep my mouth shut? Just keep talking about our kids and divorce? What do I do? What do I do? You know? And, you know, I just, help me be submissive. Help me be submissive. Help me do what you want. He just carried it. He just gave grace to it. We walked out feeling, I felt, I walked out feeling like more than a conqueror. <laughs> you know, like that was the best Night I've had in a long time. I had a great time with my brothers. But, you know, it was part of keeping spiritualities in front of me. So I, I recommend Chan on Hell. Um, this isn't up there, but I, I do want to say, I think you probably put this under point three. Keep the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in front of you. Lord, help me keep it in front of me. We, we need to be not just convinced of the horror of hell, but convinced of the joy and the solution of heaven, that we have something beautiful and wonderful and valuable and worthwhile to offer to people. And we can't do that if, if we're never immersing ourselves, if, we're, if we're, we're just keeping the gospel at arm's length a lot and we're becoming dry and dark ourselves. It's so good, you know, and these things work together. I'm reading Erasing Hell to try to keep, you know, the eternal reality before me. And I come down, it, it just felt so sweet to sing these songs about the cure. <laughs> it felt sweeter than it has in a long time. Also, I missed everybody. I was gone last week with sickness. But, but it was more than that. It was, oh, this is it's a hard read. It's hard to think about these things. It's so good to sing about these things. So they work together, you know. This is our, our final message on the, the, the outward phase. But I hope it's not the final time we're going to be talking about outward hearts. 
uh, that fi- outward phase of the Holy Spirit. But it's not the final time we're going to be talking about outreach and outward hearts. Um, but I just, I want so much to, to, you know, I don't know how many months, years left I've got on this earth. But today, standing before you, you know, I, I just want them to count for eternity. Most of us, many of us are lucky enough to know it's just a vapor here. And the stakes are so real and they're so high. And I don't want to live as if everything depended on me, but I don't want to live as if I've got no role in this and that I'm not called by God to pour myself into it. And I, and I believe you guys don't want that either. So let's just close with a prayer and, and ask God to do that. And let's sing. Can we sing worthy of your name, guys? And... Um, Let's just ask God for help.